In early June in 1992, Stacy McCall, Susie Streeter, and Cheryl Levitt went to bed in a small town in the Ozarks. By the next morning, they had vanished without a trace. And 30 years later, the mystery remains unsolved. You're already interested, aren't you? I get it. It's got all the makings of a good story. Especially if I tell you that there are allegations about devil worshipping and serial killers involved in the story. So what is it about true crime podcasts and unsolved mysteries that we crave? Especially when they occur in small southern towns. I mean, by now, true crime is a genre entirely unto itself. People can sit for hours binging what are often called murder shows, drawn to the prospect of solving a mystery, or maybe just reckoning with the discomfort of an unsolved one. Welcome back to The Reckon Interview. I'm your host, John Hammontree, and today I am speaking with Anne Roderick-Jones, creator and host of The Springfield Three, a popular podcast examining the case of the disappearance of those three women and how it affected the community as a whole. Anne grew up in Springfield, Missouri, and she was just 12 years old when these disappearances rocked her small town. We talk about why she decided to revisit this story, whether she felt any obligation to solve this crime, what she learned in the process, areas where the investigation went wrong, and why we are all so obsessed with stories like these, plus some new details that'll be revealed in upcoming bonus episodes of the Springfield 3. So let's go ahead and get started on this week's episode of The Reckon Interview. And Roderick Jones, welcome to The Reckon Interview. Thank you so much for having me, John. Uh, you are the creator and host of the Springfield 3 podcast, which tells the story of a 1992 abduction of Stacy McCall, Susie Streeter, and Cheryl Levitt, uh, who went missing from your hometown of Springfield, Missouri. You grew up there. How old were you when the abductions happened? I was 12 years old when the three women disappeared. So it was definitely that time of my life where when something like ha that happened, especially because two of the women were 18 years old, it certainly made a huge impact on my life and really everyone's life in the community at that time. What do you remember about Springfield at that time? Well, you know, we call this a small town disappearance because at the time Springfield was much smaller than, you know, we didn't have chain restaurants like they do now. Everything felt very mom and pop. Pretty much anytime you would go anywhere in that town, you would run into someone you knew you know, you kind of did things you imagined doing in a small town. You would go to the mall for entertainment when you were 12 years old, or you might go to the public swimming pool. And so I remember it being a really tight-knit community at that time versus now. It's certainly grown a lot. You know, Springfield now has cocktail bars and high-end restaurants and loads of chains. They have a Target. So, you know, they're, they're getting a Costco. It's just become such a different place. But when I was younger, it really did feel like a tight-knit community. And in the early 90s, I mean, you write about, you know, some of the things that we take for granted now, these women didn't have cell phones, you know, some of the clues that might lead to somebody being found now didn't necessarily exist 30 years ago. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you know, really everything from DNA to cell phone tracing. Uh, now, you know, when you hear about a disappearance, you can usually trace the cell phone pretty quickly to know where that person was, um, exactly what they were doing at the time. And this certainly didn't exist in 1992. This was a time when, you know, all of my friends at that time were kind of in the same neighborhood because we all went to the same school. So, you know, we were all in the, in the same neighborhood. Our friends were in the same neighborhood. And when you wanted to go and play with someone, you just walked up to the person's door, you knocked on the door and you said like, 
can Beth come out to play? You know, there wasn't any texting. We didn't have AOL chat or anything like that. So, you know, it was a much more what seemed like an innocent time, but it was also really difficult in terms of a disappearance and trying to track someone down. And as you get into later in the podcast, this was also a time where things like the satanic panic were going on. And there were several serial killers kind of at large. And that that was part of the landscape in the United States at the time. Yeah, it was. That's exactly right. And there were certainly some speculations. There were, you know, loads of speculations in this case, but one of them definitely um, pointed to the fact that someone brought up the fact that they thought that one of the young women were, you know, devil worshiping and these things that you really only hear about back then. It's not something people talk about that much, that then it was a big deal. And, you know, kidnapping was a really big deal. There was the milk cartons. And like, I know growing up, that was a big thing was, you know, not talking to strangers and kidnapping was probably the worst fear of any parent or child at that time. So um, yeah, it was a different time in terms of, you know, even crimes, I suppose, or presumably what people thought could lead to a crime like devil worshiping. Ever since Missouri joined the SEC, there's been some debate about whether Missouri could be considered a Southern state. But the Ozarks, they feel like they certainly have a Southern mystique to them, right? And and Springfield is there in the Ozarks. Yeah, it is. I think that you could probably have people saying that both Missouri is a Midwestern state, certainly, but that the Mason-Dixon line goes through Missouri and that the Ozarks, you know, which is this huge swath of land that also has, you know, a smidgen of other states in it, but primarily northern Arkansas, southern Missouri, has this very southern feeling. I know that growing up, we would drive to Kansas City or St. Louis, and it to me, it was like going to what I thought New York City was. You know, there were tall buildings. People had totally different accents. Um, There were fancy shopping, big restaurants, all those things. And so I would say in terms of the way, you know, what people do for entertainment, the ways people speak, certainly the way people cook is definitely a little bit more Southern leaning. I'm not going to get into the SEC thing, so I don't want to touch that. That's probably way more sensitive than anything else, but... Well, walk us through the night that they disappeared. Uh, that was graduation night, I believe. And there was some talk that they were going to be doing kind of the, the Ozark uh, rite of passage of going to water parks and, and Branson, things like that. Yeah. So two of the girls, and um, there were three women, Stacy, Susie, and Cheryl, um, as you had mentioned, Stacy and Susie, um, it was their graduation night. They got graduated from Hippocoo High School. That was the same high school that my own mother went to. Um, and so they had plans to go to some parties that night. Um, your typical graduation night in Springfield would be either to go to project graduation, which, um, would be to stay the night in kind of, you know, the school gym or whatever. So you're monitored or to go out to parties. And most people like to go out to the parties. You'd go to like a bonfire or something like that. And so they planned to go out to some parties. They celebrated with their families. And then the next morning they were gonna go to Whitewater, which is this water park in Branson. At the time it was probably an hour drive. And, you know, it was just your typical run of the mill water park, but it was certainly a splurge for my family to go somewhere like that. It would definitely be something you would do after graduating. 
as kind of a celebration and to go with your friends, you know, a bunch of 18 year olds is probably such a fun thing to be doing at that time. So that was their plan. And obviously that didn't happen. They ended up going to parties until what they think people think is about two in the morning approximately. So they kind of partied hopped, the two girls party hopped together. And then um, they were gonna stay the night at a friend's house. And plans changed a couple of times like they often do when you're 18 and you might be going to parties. And so at the last minute, their friend's house was full. They had people over for graduation, they had families there. And so Stacy and Susie went to Susie's house where she lived with her mother, Cheryl. They think they got there about 2 a.m. And the next morning, all three women were missing from the home. And if I remember correctly, they had left their cigarettes, they had left their clothes, they had left their purses, the cars were in the driveway. There was no indication that they had voluntarily gone anywhere. Exactly. There was no indication. All three purses were lined up right next to each other. The young girl's clothing was folded, jewelry was put into the pockets. It looked as if makeup had been taken off so that they had went to bed. The mother was last heard from at about 11 p.m. that evening. She was talking to a friend on the phone while painting a chest of drawers. So it looked as if the women had gone to bed. There, the mother was a hairdresser. There was $900 in her purse. And that was there. So, you know, you would think maybe if someone was coming in, you know, they might think about taking the money. The mother was also a chain smoker and never went anywhere without her cigarettes. And we hear in a bonus episode that will be coming out soon that, you know, her son tells me that she just never went anywhere without her cigarettes. And we, we know that of a smoker. And so her cigarettes and lighter were there. Um, all three cars were in the driveway, but they're um, was just no indication. You know, I, I spoke with one of the investigators and he said it just like everyone kept saying, it looked like they just vanished into thin air, um, which is just really a big part of the mystery that surrounds this is that how could three women go to bed and in the morning they've just completely vanished from the destination. And there wasn't much sign of struggle. There was a broken light on the porch, uh, but other than that, no indication that they had fought or anything, right? Right. Um, there was a, 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 like you said, there was a broken uh, porch light that the globe was broken. And so, you know, that could have possibly been from a sign of struggle. Certainly, it also could have just been a broken porch light. So it really was the only indicator that there could have possibly been a sign of struggle in the home. They were discovered missing the next morning when some friends came over and those friends did kind of the, the neighborly thing and, and cleaned up the broken glass, which might have been a clue or evidence or something like that. And then there was also an issue with with some answering machine, machine messages, I believe. Right. So I think there were, the total was like nearly 18 people had come in and out of the house before the police were able to get there. So you can imagine that is people touching everything, answering the phone, washing dishes, cleaning up, you know, using the bathroom, touching the doorknob. And one of the, the people who came initially saw the, one of the guys who came saw the glass on the ground. And, you know, probably what anyone would have done is that if you went to a friend's home and there was glass on the porch, you might sweep it up. So they swipe it up, they put it in a garbage can. So if that was an important piece of evidence, it wasn't able to be used. And you know, at this time, again, it's like, this is a place where there wasn't a lot of crime happening. We never locked our doors at night. I would go out and play from sunup until sundown and never 
even go home to tell my mom. It was just, everyone felt really safe there. And growing up, it felt like a safe place. So you would never imagine if you went to a friend's house and they weren't there, that they were kidnapped. You know, you would just think that they may be off somewhere. You have no way to call them. So there were some messages, you know, people were at the house for quite some time. And there were some messages that were left on the answering machine that, you know, there's not a lot of detail about them, but um, people kept saying they were lewd messages. And one of them was accidentally deleted. So, you know, there were some really um, unfortunate things that, you know, it was, everyone was very well-meaning in um, the beginning, I believe, but there were some unfortunate things that happened because no one imagined that this could be, you know, a disappearance. And you talk about, you know, I mean, there's so few clues to what happened, which already puts the local investigators at a disadvantage. But you kind of outline that there's this tension that grows between the local po police, as well as both local and national media about which types of leads should be pursued when investigating this case. Yeah, I think that was something that kind of surprised me going into this was really, there were some people that were at odds within local law enforcement. So you had this, you know, the staff that had had been there for quite some time. They were established. They were good at their jobs. They knew how to work a case. So, you know, when a tip came in, they knew what to do. They had a certain protocol. And then they had a new police chief come in, um, you know, before this had happened. And he kind of had this different way. He was a former FBI. He wasn't from the Ozarks. And so I think there was a little bit of personality clash. You know, you might hear people say in interviews um, that, you know, he micromanaged the case and it was, you know, tips were chased differently and leads were chased differently than they would have been if he weren't the police chief at the time. And then 48 hours came in. I think they were actually in Branson for like a musical show. Someone tipped them off about this disappearance. They were granted like a lot of access to this case. And I think that that was something that some people in law enforcement, um, even some of the local journalists really felt could have, um, you know, may have impeded the investigation initially. And, you know, initially is, you know, those early hours are so important. So when you're getting these leads and you're chasing these tips and they aren't going anywhere, it just, you know, it starts to become a little bit frantic at that time. Well, and it's interesting, you know, this case that you were investigating has been popular among true crime aficionados for a while. You talk about there's, you know, blogs dedicated to leads and, and theories and things like that about what went wrong. As you were publishing this, what types of messages were you getting from the audience? Like, you know, how were you able to decide what was worth investigating and what was worth and what needed to be left out? Um, well, there was a lot that probably needed to be left out and was left out because once you would start fact checking it, you know, like that's what we do for a living. We, you know, we fact check things. So when you get it, someone on Facebook saying, well, you know, I think this happened and it's like, well, that actually couldn't have happened. Like, it's just not, you know, it doesn't add up. It doesn't check out. So those, you know, there were things like that that got dismissed pretty quickly. You know, there might be someone who would say that it was an alien abduction and, you know, not that I'm like, you know, the end all be all on whether alien abductions are happening, but it would be something that I probably wouldn't spend too much time on because there's also, again, no way to fact check that. So it was, it was really about like trying to fact check leads that seemed plausible. And, you know, sometimes they were, there was a part in the podcast where this kid 
you know, was in the woods and he saw something really, or, you know, he said he saw something really horrific. He wrote about it in a blog post. And so it almost felt scary when listening to it. It was really almost gruesome. We tried to be really sensitive about it, of course, but I, you know, went back and there were newspaper articles that had dates of him, you know, dying from a self self-inflicted gunshot wound. So it was just a matter of making sure, like, did this guy really kill himself? Did this, you know, could this have happened? You know, we certainly wouldn't say it happened, but just trying to match dates to facts. And it's a lot, you know, there are so many things that you can go down these wormholes for hours and just be like, could this have actually happened? And, you know, again, I always say that I'm not an investigator. I'm not out to solve this case. I just want to be able to let people tell their stories. So that's really what was most important to me. Certainly not to like try to be the one to solve it. I'm not an investigator. I don't know how. I'm just someone who does reporting. That post you're talking about, he described he had been camping and he basically heard and saw three women being brutally raped and and or murdered by, was it one man or two men? and then loaded back up in the truck and, and taken away. Uh, yes, exactly. They were going, it was, he, I think he was visiting from out of town, uh, I believe it was Dallas area, and visiting a friend who lived in the area, not far from this area that we always called the Girl Scout camp growing up. And I used to go there with my friends. It was really spooky. That's why we went there just to like scare ourselves, which is so dumb. I would never do that now. But when you're a kid, there's nothing else to do. So we'd go out to this place that we called the Girl Scout camp, and it wasn't actually a Girl Scout camp it was a you know hunting lodge but it had old buildings that were just kind of ruins of buildings like a fireplace it had an empty swimming pool that would have like satanic markings on it and you know because again early 90s and it was just a creepy place so they had went out there probably to scare themselves as well and um, presumably they heard and saw what they later realized may have been those women so that's something that you would find maybe when looking through some of these blog posts and websites and message boards and Facebook groups that are dedicated to this particular case, which is, you know, really of interest. I think a lot of it is because it was three beautiful women, you know, three people. It's really difficult to make one person disappear, but to make three people disappear and not have any ideas to where they went is it's very difficult and it fascinates a lot of people. You mentioned that you didn't set out to solve this case. I am curious, you know, you are a successful travel and magazine writer and you took on this project as an independent podcaster, along with the wonderful team at Edit Audio, who listeners will know also works on this show. So why was it so important to you to tell the story that you were willing to kind of take on that self-publication aspect of it? What was it about it that, that drew you to it? I initially thought this would make an interesting book because it's an interesting story and it hadn't been covered very much. You know, there it have a, you know, some obviously a lot of local coverage, but especially over the past, it's 29 years old. There wasn't a lot of national coverage on it. And, you know, you know, as a journalist, like you're just, you really are interested in stuff that maybe hasn't been covered yet. And this was from my hometown. So it was, you know, it was even more interesting to me, but as I started listening to podcasts and especially true crime podcasts, I realized that this would make, you know, a better story in the form of a podcast. And then it would allow these people from my town, you know, the mother of the girl, Stacy, who was, who has disappeared. It would allow her to tell her story. And 
to share it and it would allow law enforcement to tell their story and local journalists. So, you know, I think a lot of it was about being from the Ozarks. It's such a, an interesting place. And now there's been a little bit more interest in the Ozarks because of, you know, TV shows. So I knew that being able to weave in that personal narrative would be able to show people what this part of the U.S. is, you know, which is a little bit interesting. People really don't go to that area unless they're going to like Branson or something. So, yeah. Coming up after the break, Ann Roderick Jones and I discuss what it's like to grow up in towns with high profile missing persons cases and why we're all so drawn to true crime stories. It was on June 7th of 1992 when three women completely vanished from a single-family home in the Missouri Ozarks, and they've been missing ever since. Police are working extended shifts around the clock trying to find Cheryl Levitt, her daughters Suzanne Streeter, and Suzanne's best friend Stacy McCall. I thought, there's something really wrong about this. She's not here, her clothes are here, and her car is here and her purse is here and the keys are here, I think we better report them missing. Somehow they were targeted, uh, but certainly the person that did us had enough of an idea of what they needed to do to be able to get rid of three bodies. It just looked like, and it's the word I've used ever since this happened, like they were taken up to heaven. They were just gone. This is the Springfield Three, the story of three missing women who forever changed a small Missouri town and the people in it. There was no DNA at the scene and no bodies have been found. All that's left are some tattered missing posters and a lot of theories. So what really happened? To make one person disappear would be difficult. To make three disappear is nearly impossible. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. So you grew up there in Springfield, but you had moved away. Uh, you now split time mostly between New York and New Orleans. I'm curious what the experience was like interviewing the people from your hometown. You know, uh, did they view you as an outsider? Did they view you as somebody who grew up there? How did you get them to open up to you? This is a story that has been featured in national media before. You know, was there any reluctance for people to, to go down that path again? Yes, there was some reluctance from people, mostly the family, which is so understandable. You know, they had had their story told in ways that weren't, you know, maybe it wasn't as told as accurately as they would have hoped. When I was going in, I think that that was something that people were, it was hard to get those interviews initially. You know, another reason people were hesitant was because they didn't know what a podcast was. You know, some of these people were in their 70s and 80s, and it's just not a medium for listening to media as it, you know, it's not as popular. So some of them didn't know what a podcast was, but it was mostly just the reluctance because of some of the national media attention that they had received. And so for me, it was just really about building that trust with people involved. It really did help that I was from there. I still have my cell phone still has the area code from Springfield area. And a lot of my family or friends knew someone who was involved in this because again, you know, all of these people grew up in the Ozarks. So the degree of separation is pretty small. We were able to gain access to the house. It's still standing. It still looks almost exactly the same. 
that the women were presumably taken from. And so that was because I had a one of my friends growing up high school, we actually went to preschool together. He had a friend that lived there at the time. So I think that that certainly helped. I knew when they would talk about something like the Girl Scout camp, you know, I had been there. My family owned a a Christian bookstore on the north side of town and it had my last name, it was Roderick's bookstore. So I think there was some, you know, that really helped build trust knowing that I knew what happened at the time and I remembered it and that, you know, I wanted to tell the story as accurately as possible. The man who bought that house, you described that he sometimes will get people who drive by kind of staring at the house. Have you heard if that's picked up more since the podcast got published? That's a good question, John. I I haven't heard if that's happened more. I hope not for his sake. I mean, but, you know, I think that you could ask anyone who lives in that town, maybe not someone super, super young, but they would know exactly where that house was because it was something that you did. You drove by there. It was just so sad and fascinating that something like that happened. And that house was featured, you know, prominently in local news photos of it. So, you know, I think pretty much everyone there, I know for a while, I believe it was for sale when I was, you know, growing up and, you know, just everyone talking about the fact that that house was for sale. So it was a, it was such a big part of it because again, that's where the women presumably went to sleep. And then, you know, whenever morning came, they had vanished. What other response did you get from the community once the podcast itself went live? So we initially set out to do eight episodes and it just, you know, that would be our season. And we ended with the impact that it had had on the community for years. And since the podcast had aired, we, you know, there were some interviews that we couldn't get that I really wanted to get. One of them being the son of the woman, Cheryl, and the brother of Susie. His name's Bart Streeter. And he's you know, he's really known to be apprehensive of media, and I think it's for good reason. He was a suspect initially in the case, and so I really wanted to talk with him. I tried really hard to get an interview, and then after the podcast aired, he reached out to me after the fourth episode and just said, you know, I'm listening to this. I appreciate the way you're depicting my mother and sister, and so of course I asked for an interview, you know, telling him we would probably do a bonus episode, and he said he wanted to listen to all of it, and then I think he felt that I honored his mother and sister's, I guess, legacy really, but really honored them and tried to tell their story as accurately as possible. And so we have, um, in one of the bonus episodes, we're dedicated to interviewing him and letting him tell his side of the story, which, you know, this is something that I've just been thinking about for the past two years and researching, but this has really followed him his entire life. You grew up in the community, you've heard stories about this your whole life, you recognize the places. Were there any ideas or certainties that you had about the story going into the process that you know turned out to be wrong? Was there anything that you learned that surprised you? Growing up, there were these really popular theories that everyone talked about. And when you mentioned this, you know, this case, we always called it the three missing women. But when you mentioned this case, people would say, oh, I've heard they're buried under a parking lot. And there were two parking lots that people spoke about. One was a Western wear store um, and one was the Southside Cox Hospital. And so people always said that. It was pretty much that or alien abduction. And so going into that, I was just, you know, I wanted to know if that was even a possibility. And I think we, you know, not that we can rule anything out, but after doing research and speaking with people, experts, law enforcement, those 
things just didn't seem as plausible. But they were really the forefront, I would say, of speculation as to where the women could have been. So that was surprising that it was just to me almost like I didn't want to spend a lot of time on that. I wasn't discounting it. And if something came up that could pinpoint that, great. But I think it was just a, you know, it was one of those theories that was interesting. And people thought, oh, the hospital was built around that time. They could be in the parking lot. They had a psychic come in at one point and found some abnormalities in the ground. And so, but to me, it was, there were other things that I probably spent a little bit more time on researching other than that. But I kind of thought that would just be like, I would be spending a lot of time on parking lot theories, <laughs> but I didn't. You know, I was surprised while listening to it, you get to an episode where you discuss basically the serial killer theory. And as the episode started, I was like, well, what are the odds that a serial killer would just happen to be coming through and know that these women are, are there? But you break down, I think it's three separate serial killers who may have been involved, Larry Dwayne Hall, Gerald Carnahan, and Robert Craig Cox. And Robert Craig Cox in particular has basically said, has claimed he knows what happened to the women, but he won't tell anybody until his mother dies. Do you think that there is some grounds to that, or is that just the bluster of, of a sociopath? What, what, what's your thought on Robert Craig Cox? Well, I mean, I think it could be either one. He's obviously capable, and if you look at things that he has been in trouble for, you can kind of pinpoint like, oh, it might be this type of person, you know, which is a young woman that's attractive. And so, you know, you can see that parallel. He certainly was attention seeking in that statement, whether it's truthful or not. His mother is still alive. And in the bonus episodes, we speak to, so Robert Craig Cox at the time said that his alibi was that he was at church with his girlfriend. He lived with a, a woman and she said that they were at church. Well, she ended up recanting that statement. So in the bonus episode, I speak with the daughter, with her daughter, and she lived with Robert Craig Cox at the time of the disappearance. She really goes into um, his personality, what he was like. They called him Bob. I had never heard this before. So she kept calling him Bob and um, would tell me these stories about him that were just pretty fascinating. And then I also had a woman reach out on Instagram and said that she she got a ride from someone when she was 14 and some things happened. She ended up seeing later on a true crime show, a picture of Robert Craig Cox. And so she tells that story in her bonus episode too. So, you know, when you kind of start hearing things like that, you realize that there, you know, it's certainly a possibility, but there's just no way to know that. We, we really do hope to be able to speak to him and go into the prison and I hope to interview him, but you know, every plan, as you know, has been derailed because of COVID. And so, you know, they weren't allowing anyone to go in. And if that happens in the future, whether he agrees to that or not, I'm not sure if that will happen. Is it hard to remove yourself from wanting to have certainty and a theory about what happened and, and to just chase each piece of evidence and just each piece of string? I guess from a perspective of the families, I, I wish that I knew or I had something that I was really like super passionate about um, because I want for the families, I obviously want this to be solved. But from you know a perspective of a journalist, it's really just more about gathering as much information as I can and telling those stories that are important. So from that, I think it's easier to remove yourself. You know, it's just like these, for a long time, I had all these like, poster boards and post-its all over my apartment that had like theories that people had and suspects. And, and I think it was just almost 
even though I was really involved in thinking about this case, it was really just from a story, storytelling perspective. Did you have any moments where you were finding yourself just emotionally caught up in this case? Yeah, I really was. Um, and I know that that's possible. You know, I also have a full-time job. So that's, you know, something that I, I definitely am occupied with that. And I freelance. And so I definitely have a life outside of this. But no, I think it's also, you know, like my husband's a nurse and he, he kind of leaves that at home, you know, or leaves it at work and doesn't bring it home. Or I have a friend who's a you know, counselor that she doesn't, you know, she really just doesn't bring her work home and it's part of her job. So for me, it wasn't, I didn't get too, I guess, emotionally attached to this. Do you have any sense of why so many people are so drawn to true crime stories, whether it's podcasts or movies or books or TV shows? I mean, that's a great question. It probably goes back to, you know, us talking about like, why did I go into those woods as a kid? Like, why do people watch The Ring or whatever scary movies out now? Because I can't watch them anymore. But like, it's fascinating. Like people like to be scared for some strange reason. But true crime is, you know, the difference, I guess, with that is that it's actually true. And so I think for me, listening to something like Serial, it was about like people love to talk about who did it and they love to try to solve the the crime or the disappearance, you know, I think that something that's come of this is I've had so many different people say um, who they thought it was and everyone wants to know who I think it is and what happened. And so I think that there's some kind of intrigue about being that, you know, amateur detective and listening to this story, you know, listening to a podcast is such a, a lovely way to hear a story anyway. It's like, you know, the radio when you were younger, but being able to be involved in that and, um, you know, have debates with your friends as to whether you think someone did it or didn't is, is something that is new, a little bit more new because of podcasts and fascinating to people, I guess. That's, do you have any ideas to why? Oh, I mean, I think that that's a lot of it. I, I think it's also, you know, people want kind of the closure. They want to know that something terrible out there has happened and, and that they can figure out why it happened. And sometimes, sometimes we don't know why it happened. And maybe, like you said, people like to be scared. And I think maybe sometimes people like to be reminded that they're isn't necessarily certainty in, in everything. I mean, particularly with the case of serial, you know, it's about undoing the certainty of the crime and, and of who perpetrated it. So, you know, how would you define the South? What, where does the South start for you? What, what parts of the country are the South? I don't know if I like have a definitive answer for that. To me, the South is, I'm sure there's some lines and everyone, I think people define them differently at different times. If I'm, I don't know if that's correct, but I think just like being in New York and New Orleans, being Southern is just, or Southern things. And we talked about this is such a, you know, it's a way of life more to me than, you know, a definitive line. So it's growing up, or maybe even if you don't grow up, you eat certain foods, you behave a certain way, are interested in things that people might not be as interested in in other places or vice versa. And it, there's a very distinct um, difference between Southerners and Northerners to me living in both parts of the country. And so to me, that's just a little bit like, I know what my life is gonna be like when I'm in New Orleans and it's a very different life than I would have in New York. And a lot of that is because of Southerners. You know, it's not as much about the house that I live in, even though it's an old New Orleans house, it's a, 
it's really about the people that make it that way. You know, the neighbors that you have and the personalities of Southerners. So I think for me, that's probably like a better way to think about the difference between where the South really starts. Obviously, Hurricane Ida hit both New Orleans and New York. Were, were you okay in, in both places? Are your, are your homes in each city okay? Yeah, uh, we have some damage to our home in New Orleans. You know, our fence blew away, but it was a really old fence anyway. It was bound to happen, and we've had some roof damage, but definitely, you know, compared to some of the other people there, we were really lucky. Um, I think the damage we had was pretty comparable to most people there. So we, you know, this is such a Southern thing, but we have these amazing neighbors and our entire block is really close with each other. And, you know, we had people in our house helping us out. We had people tying up our furniture and, um, you know, there's such a sense of community there that's just really, you know, is such a part of the fabric of the South that in times like that, where it's really difficult, you see people pull together um, in ways that are just it really, really incredible, you know, cooking food, giving out free food, um, restaurants, you know, cooking food for people. It's just, it's really incredible how much people help each other there, which I think is such a big part, um, you know, such a way of life in the South. So we really fared well, you know, mostly because of our neighbors in that situation. I know you're still reporting out bonus episodes for, for this series, but do you have another story you want to tell? Are you hooked on podcasting at this point? Yeah, I do have another story I want to tell. I think it's a good one. We'll see. It's interesting. It's also set in the Ozarks. So yeah, I, I hope that I can tell it. I think it's a, it's a pretty interesting story. So once these bonus episodes are out, there will probably be time to concentrate on writing something new. Cool. Well, we look forward to listening to it. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. And that's our show, folks. Thank you to Ann Roderick-Jones for her time today. You can find her series, The Springfield Three, on all major podcasting platforms, so go ahead and subscribe to it now. What are some of your favorite true crime podcasts? Are there other hosts that you think we should be having on The Reckon Interview? Let me know by finding me on Twitter at at John Hammontree, or just leave your answer in a five-star review for us on Apple Podcasts. Or join us over in our newsletter community, The Conversation, by going to reckonsouth.com slash newsletters. The Reckon Interview is executive produced and hosted by me, John Hammondry. It's edited by Kanika Codrington and the great team over at Edit Audio. And they also produce the Springfield Three, uh, Ann Roderick Jones's show. Our original theme music was written and recorded by Alexander Ritchie. And until next time, thanks for reckoning with me.